You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. Hello and welcome to Columbia Calling. I'm Emily Hart, and today on the podcast, we meet some of the team racing against time to study and store the genetics of our food, creating a global backup drive for the DNA of the plants which keep the human race alive. Last century, we lost 70% of our food's biodiversity, swallowed up by climate change, habitat loss, industrial agriculture, and the homogenization of our global diet. Future Seeds is a state-of-the-art facility which opened last month, tucked away among the many miles of sugarcane plantations outside the city of Cali. Days after its inauguration, Jeffrey Bezos's Earth Fund pledged 17 million US dollars to the Gene Bank to support its work on climate change mitigation. In the genetic world, Future Seeds is the Library of Alexandria, with 67,000 samples stored there. Anyone, anywhere in the world, can request materials from this bank, or can ask for materials with certain qualities, for example needing to tolerate intense heat or flooding, which are then selected or even bred by the team, and then distributed for free. The methods are futuristic, from drones which can scan underground root structures, to x-rays which can measure mineral content in crops, and even gene editing, as well as an artificial intelligence rover rolling around the fields. But before we get into it, your top news stories for this week. Following the controversy around the vote count in the March legislative elections and in the face of widespread criticism, National Registrar Alexander Vega has implemented new measures to prevent the issues reoccurring in the May presidential elections. Measures include bigger forms with colour photos of candidates and real-time auditing in case there is any issue along with in-depth training for voting jurors and vote counters. Meanwhile, the tours, speeches, debates, meetings and informal coffees continue between shifting combinations of politicians in the run-up to the presidential first-round elections. Politicians continue presidential campaigns and look to congressional coalitions to make their policy proposals viable in terms of lawmaking. The Comunes party, made up of former FARC guerrillas, has announced official support for Gustavo Petro and left-wing coalition Pacto Histórico, saying, we will legislate with you. Comunes have 10 seats in the legislature, five in the House of Representatives and five in the Senate, seats guaranteed by the 2016 peace accords. The National Statistic Department's new political culture survey shows that the majority of Colombians consider themselves to be of the political centre, with an increase of nearly 5% since 2019, now at 38.5%. However, polls generally show that Petro leads the voting intention with around 35%, with right-wing candidate of Equipo por Colombia, Federico Gutierrez, at around 24%. Other candidates, including centrists like Sergio Fajardo, are lagging way behind. 
In the event that no candidate gains more than 50% of the votes in the first round in May, there will be a runoff election in June. According to one poll, a potential runoff between Petro and Gutierrez could be extremely close. However, the polls themselves are drawing controversy. Journalist Daniel Coronel has said that the way that the polls are being presented in the national press, particularly by right-wing magazine Semana, is not reflecting voting intentions, but is instead creating them. A military operation in Putumayo, near the border with Ecuador, is responsible for the killing of civilians. The National Ombudsman has confirmed civilian deaths, contradicting the government's version that the 11 dead were FARC dissidents. The president himself had publicly celebrated the operation as a security win. However, the community quickly spoke up against the government's version of events, and justice bodies have confirmed that the murdered include the president of a community action council, an indigenous governor, and a 16-year-old, among others. Social organizations have referred to it as another case of Colombia's historical false positive scandal. Extrajudicial executions to create false evidence of military success against armed groups. The Attorney General's office has announced that it will investigate and the UN has called on the authorities to clarify what happened and guarantee access to justice. The green light for Colombia's first pilot fracking project has now been given by the National Environmental Licensing Authority. It will be developed four kilometers from the town of Puerto Wilches, Santander, and will cover an area of 4.7 hectares with one platform and one well. Energy companies maintain fracking is vital for Colombia's energy self-sufficiency, but many scientists and activists warn of huge risks to the environment and to local communities. A legal appeal has been lodged to try and prevent the pilot going ahead, on the legal basis that the proper consultation with local Afro-Colombian communities did not take place. Colombia's central bank raised the benchmark interest rate to 5% on Thursday, significantly lower than expected amid continued increases in inflation, which hit 8% in February, nearly three times the bank's target rate. Central banks around the world are pushing to control inflation aggravated by the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But Colombia is also facing a crisis of living costs. Consumer price increases for food reached 23% last month. After a phone call with Ukraine's president, President Ivan Duque reported that he had expressed Colombia's solidarity with all Ukrainian people calling Zelensky an example to the world in defending the sovereignty of his people while condemning the horror and war caused by the Russian invasion. The Ukrainian president also reported that he was grateful for Colombia's humanitarian assistance and that the two countries had agreed to initiate joint economic and defense projects after the war. Those were your top stories for this week. I'll be back next Monday, but don't forget to tune in tomorrow to the Columbia Calling podcast. I'm hosting this week, and I'll be talking to the team racing against time to store and study the genetics of our food, creating a global backup drive for the DNA of the plants which keep the human race alive from a groundbreaking new facility just outside Cali, Colombia.
So guys, welcome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Great to be on it. Yeah, happy. Very happy. So let's dive in. Um, seed banking. Can you explain a bit for our listeners how seed banking is, is the future of food? Well, it's, it's the past and it's the future and it's the present as well. <laughs> um, but seed banking is um, just a, a secure to maintain the diversity of the, of the crops um, that really feed the world now and it fed the world in the past and we definitely hope that they will feed the, the future generations. And while only um, not only having crops uh, for, for the food, it's also helping maintain wild species related to these crops, which also can serve in uh, maintaining or um, uh, recovering soils that have been damaged for, for different reasons. I mean, it, it, and it, just to just to compliment it, you know, it, it it's the importance of seeds in the agriculture in agriculture. I mean, obviously, everyone needs seeds to plant, but but you know, the the found the very foundation of our agriculture is based on farmers selecting and and and, and moving these these plants from these wild kind of things in forests into what is today the domesticated bean or the domesticated maize plant and. Um, you know, that's been the product of, of thousands of years of work by farmers from across the world. And in so doing, they've created an incredible amount of diversity in, in, in these things. You might not see it in the supermarket, but um, around the world, you have different colors, different shapes of every agricultural product you can, you can imagine. Um, and Future Seeds is a kind of cathedral for cons- conservation of those of those uh, of that diversity around the world, and it's not just for today's problems; it's for all of these future problems, and we don't even know what they are. Um, you know, the, when many of these seeds were collected, climate change wasn't a thing, right? I mean, it was happening, but no one had really actually figured out that uh, we had a problem of climate change when many of these collections were made in the '60s and the '70s. And now, this is the the it's the seed bank that we go back back into to find the answers to some of the climate crisis that we're facing right now. So what are some of the ways that climate change threatens the diversity and variations of our foodstuffs? So, I I mean, I will say you, I've worked for a long time in climate change and food security and food systems, and it's super scary. Um, You know, the, 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 the Paris agreement talks about two degrees of warming, um, talks about staying within 1.5 degrees um, and we're on a trajectory that you know it's it's becoming less and less likely that we're going to be able to, to, to meet that um, but you know two degrees of warming in agriculture is massive um, you know it's the difference between a bumper crop and a, and a really really poor harvest and and so um, when you look at globally the challenges of climate change in the food system, it's pretty brutal. The, the, the projections are not great at all. And so we're in this race against time to use all of this diversity that we have, find all of these traits and characteristics that will bring drought tolerance or bring heat tolerance or waterlogging tolerance to all of the different, the, the hundreds of crops that, that we rely on as human beings across the world. And, uh, well, we have several examples, uh, uh, scary examples, as Andy said. Um, 
materials that were collected in the 70s and 80s, and we did not know what they were good for or what they were useful for. But then after 20, 30 years, uh, after one evaluation, uh, it happened that uh, these materials were uh, either producing quite a lot or either resistant to diseases or uh, having sufficiently long uh, roots to sustain hurricanes, for example. And, and some of them are no longer at the place of origin, which is uh, scary, and, uh, but on the other way, fortunate that the gene bank still have this material. Yeah, and it, and it just outlines the, the need why you need both. You need that in situ conservation. So, you know, conserve, we need to conserve forests. We need to conserve biodiversity in situ out there. But, um, you know, the dangers are we still have rife deforestation across the globe and um you know there's there's one of these great photos basically of the place where one of these beans was collected it was then found to have huge importance in terms of the characteristics that it has and today it's a car park and um obviously you know, that that plant that was there once is no longer there now um but fortunately we have it in the gene bank and there we can use it so thankfully um for all of us some very clever people quite a long time ago realized that diversity would be equivalent or a huge part of food security. Um, and this facility joins a global network, each of which has its own focus or its own uh, crops in the region. And you guys are all uh, exchanging ideas and materials and, and research techniques, as I understand it. Um, so what's special about this new facility in, in Colombia, in Cali? Well, many things. <laughs> uh, one thing maybe related to this uh, need of conservation is that it includes on the design this uh, biophilia. It means uh, it tries to bring nature into the building and, and somehow make feel the visitors and the, and the staff working there uh, to be in nature. And that also relates to this conservation of, I mean, human beings are really happy uh, among nature most of them right so that's one inter interesting part uh it just uh tries to uh make people happy because they are really uh into this uh, mission of conserving seeds but they are also in nature and in addition the, the entire design is also uh trying to be neutral at least in water consumption we harvest all the water and also process it before it goes back into into nature, let's say, and it's very highly efficient also in energy consumption. So we're pursuing very um, happily and, and proud uh, pursuing this uh, LEED certification uh, platinum, which is the highest level in this certification. So it's a double message, just having this mission to conserve uh, the diversity of food and agriculture for these uh, three uh, specific collections but also uh, doing it sustain in, a, in a sustainable way. So um, we also have more space, that's the idea. Perhaps either uh, also in the future include different, different crops uh, and just make uh, our collections bigger and also to engage with the, with the public to, to be able to uh, transmit this, uh, this need, this uh, very important message of, we, of conserving our genetic resources, not only in nature, but also, I mean, just for food and, and agriculture, and be able to train uh, the future generations on genetic resources as well. 
Yeah, I mean, our current seed bank is like, I always called it Colombia's best kept secret um, or worst kept secret, really. It, it, it was, no one no one really knows it. No one gets to, gets to see it and experience and understand this. And too many people in the world think that their food comes from a supermarket or we're still a fridge, right? Um, and, um, you know, I think this is, this takes the, the, the seed bank, the new seed bank, what we wanted to do is just turn the operation of this thing inside out so that anyone can see what's going on in here and make it into this beacon where people come, get inspired, and we can have that conversation about where does your food really come from, right? And, it, um, you know, and, and you go into the very origins of, you know, why, why is a bean a bean? Why, why, you know, why does it look like that? What was it when it, you know, 5,000 years ago, before it was domesticated, it was nothing like the bean that you eat right now. And so that, we want to create those conversations and educate also the next generation to understand where food comes from and also just how, how delicate our food system is and why it needs that attention. And it, it feels like a huge step forward in, in scale, but also in recognition. The centre, it's got an enormous amount of funding from international governments, including the, the British government. Um, it was inaugurated by President Ivan Duque. Um, and on the same day, I'm told Jeffrey Bezos announced a huge donation um, and even visited the site himself. Um, Marcelo was saying, you guys both met him. How was that? Yeah, we both got to meet him. It was... Uh... It was fascinating. I mean, it was great. We, it was 90 minutes, very quick kind of tour of the place. Um, but, you know, in, in true executive style in those 90 minutes, made a, you know, saw everything he needed to make a decision and say, all right, let's, let's give these guys $17 million, which was very, very good. Um, you know, it was the, probably the best, uh, the most impactful 90 minutes I've ever spent with someone. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, but, you know, this, I, I think the, the key thing is, is the building itself, it's very hard on a podcast to get, to get an idea of what this looks like, but it, but it's inspiring. And it's just, I think it's inspiring for anyone who comes, as I say, you know, to, and it spurs this conversation about what is the food that we eat and where does it come from? And why is, you know, why do we need to, 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 to really think about it? Why is it so, you know, so kind of vulnerable as well, um, our food? Um, but more than that as well, just for us as researchers in, 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 in on campus, having that there is just an enormous inspiration and it just raises the spirits. And It's incredibly futuristic. Um, and I have to say it fits with what I've seen of um, another key element in this global network. So, Almost all of the seed banks are involved very actively in this genetic research. Um, but there's one in Svalbard, if that's the right pronunciation, which is an island in the Arctic Ocean, which is it's sort of the mothership, right? So it's another incredibly like weird-looking futuristic building surrounded by snow and ice, um, and the seeds there are not touched. They're not pulled out and played with. They're not, um, they're not maintained in the same way. Um, there's a great anecdote about a seed bank in Syria, which was all but destroyed um, during the war. And the team managed to rebuild and rebreed their work um, by making a withdrawal from, from the mothership, quote unquote, um, in Svalbard. Um, but from what I've seen from the Colombian bank, from Future Seeds, it's incredibly dynamic. There's so much work going on. Um, and it's, I did go inside one of the freezers 
they're very cold. Um, but there's also um, little bonsai yucca, which have to be maintained all the time. Um, so we had this incredible tour and it's really from, you know, all the way from white coat to, to plate, right? Um, all the way from the very nature of the genetic material of the seed to how people eat and why they eat. Um, so could you guys tell us a bit more about this, this very holistic approach of the center? Yeah, well, I, I, I'll take a crack at that. So, I mean, it, really, it all starts at the gene bank, at the seed, the seed bank. That's where you get the genetic material um, the, the, that is crucial for adapting our crops to all of the, the various challenges that we have. And that's really the starting point. Um, and, you know, we work on a few specific crops. There's a global system that, that works kind of systematically looking at food security challenges around the world. And, and we, you know, we work on all of the major staples that are important for poor, vulnerable people across, across the planet. Um, in, in our facility, we look at beans, we look at cassava, uh, we look at tropical forages, which is basically what you know, feeds our, our cattle around the world. Um, and um, we also look on campus at um, um, rice, especially for Latin America, right? And so, you know, the, the classic um, rice and beans kind of, you know, the, the plate, basically we're covering all of the, the, the staples that you need in a plate um, for, to please most of Latin Americans. You know, you need the rice, you need the beans, and you need some, some meat on it. That's, that's, <laughs> that's very much the mentality of Latin America, right? So, so those are the, the crops we look at. And the seed bank is the starting point. That's where all of the genetic material is to then start solving some of the problems that we see out in the world. And so we were, we're interested in looking at things like uh, climate change and making, making production easier for smallholder farmers. So how can they get off their land more product, basically? How can they get more, more beans, more cassava, more rice off their one hectare of land or their half hectare of land or even, even less, right? So that's, you know, that's one aspect, but, but it's not just about more product. It's also better product. And so, there we're looking at the 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 um, you know developing new varieties that are adapted to climate change that are um, um, for example resistant to very dangerous pests and diseases that might might be afflicting those crops and then making those the food that is generated on those fields also more nutritious and so we also then look at things like biofortification so that's getting basically for example in beans we look at getting more iron into a bean so. Um, you know, beans are a primary source of iron for many people around the world, millions of people, especially in Africa. It's really critical for, for women, um, adolescent girls. Um, it's, it's a critical source of iron. And, uh, and so there we look also to create the next generation of crops that, that are also high and rich in these micronutrients. Um, so, you know, then there's this hole from the, from the seed bank, it goes into the use of of those in terms of the breeding programs. And then it's working to get those things out into farmers' fields being used. And also there's even a, a rice tasting center on site. Um, because obviously if you put too much iron in a bean, for example, it'll start to, to taste, I couldn't tell you exactly how, but one assumes not good. Yeah, and, and and that's the critical thing that you must never forget. In the end of the day, people need to eat, you know want to buy these and and eat these products, right? So 
So yeah, I mean, everyone jumps at going for uh, whiskey tasting, you know, or uh, wine tasting, cheese tasting. But uh, you know, we have a rice tasting lab, so you know, we have a, a panel of experts that actually really know how to like do, like feel the different, the distinct flavors, the textures, and so on, and rate all of the the varieties that we put out, so that you know they're not just, as I say, you know, rich in nutrients. You know, we don't want to create the next Brussels sprout that that is great for you, but no one. No one likes. We want to create. Uh, we create create the next next varieties of crops that produce food that people want to eat as well, and you know look for on the market. I won't leap in and defend the humble Brussels sprout <laughs> because I'm not sure we have time. But I happen to love them. I um, love them too. But, you know, it's a whole <laughs> yeah. childhood of not. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I think you you hit a certain age and you start thinking something's gone wrong because I'm finding this quite pleasurable. Um, <laughs> I think I, I heard cited um, during the tour another fascinating element of this, which is that they've done studies and the way that people like their rice, it's not just taste, it's about uh, sticky versus loose, right? And you can yeah, travel yeah. three hours in this region and the rice totally changes. So globally, there are huge challenges, right? Not just in terms of like, oh God, does it taste of iron? But how do people like it where we're taking it? Yeah, that, that's when you have to really take into account this market, this consumption uh, habits or, or, or likes, whatever you say. Uh, we also find it in, in, in beans, for example. Uh, actually, beans is not only one crop. One can talk about five or even seven different crops because we have the seven, uh, well, five different species and some hybrids that were also cultivated by different communities a long time. And, and they are completely different, completely different. It's not the same species. Uh, they are related, but not the same. So um, former um, leader of the gene bank, Daniel De Buc, uh, is just uh, an expert on beans. Uh, he's, he says so we should improve the different species and then consider them as different crops because uh, the attributes that one species has, the others does not. Uh, but it all relates also to, to market and to consumption. Uh, but this is changing very rapidly because 30 years ago, I, I don't recall even having to cross to, to, for quinoa. And, and farmers were using quinoa but for, feeding, for feeding pigs because it was very highly protein content and it was very useful. But for humans, no, at that, at that time. Who would think of, of eating quinoa? So the, the consumption um, habits also are changing, and they are changing faster than we might think. So that's why when Andy says we don't know what the, what the challenges would be in, in 5, in 10, in 50 years, then there is the gene bank, there is the, the source, the future seeds with this base um, seeds or basic genetic materials to to start looking for possible responses right because these consumption habits you know some of them seem to be moving positively like moving towards eating quinoa that certainly got a reputation as a sort of wanky hipster food in london at least um though it is both delicious and nutritious in my humble opinion um but we have these other trends which are um effectively the homogenization and I, I don't want to say the kind of gringoization of diet but the the desire for eg hamburgers and chips globally 
the loss of, of local food cultures in the face of, you know, global consumer capitalism as applied to, to foods. Um, so how, how do we combat those trends, which, which don't seem to be moving in a positive direction nutritionally? Why? I mean, you, look at, you can look at food as, as both a, an enormous force of good. I mean, you know, we all need food, right, to, to live. But it's also a source of enormous challenges in our society as well. And, you know, there's the whole environmental side of our food system, which, which, which I won't go into now, but, um, but also just, just health. The very food that we're eating is, um, you know, generating maybe the basic sustenance that, that we need, but we still have 1 billion people hungry. So we're not nailing that. For another number of billion, you know, we're, 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 we're delivering the calories and kind of some of the micronutrients and nutrients that we need, but, but not in a great way. And then there are still, there are now 1.8 billion people who are overweight, uh, in the world. And that's coming from the food that they're eating. And, and so, you know, you need to, you, we really need to think as a human society about the role of food, um, in, in what, how we live our lives. And, and I think, you know, the governance need to realize that, you know, if, if you want to deal with health effects in the population, you need to start really seriously thinking about the food and, and, you know, and it's, it's really growing this, this now across a number of countries, but there's lots we can do. I mean, some just going back though, to the example of, of, of some of the work that we do, you know, it's about boosting the good, but it's also about, um, bringing down the bad, right? And so uh, rice, for example, um, we can be looking at going back to the seed bank and going back into these breeding programs, looking at how can we reduce the glycemic index? And so, you know, instead of rice being a source of kind of calories and, and overconsumption of rice generating, but, you know, being a kind of, you know, with that glycemic index quite high, generating um, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, we can be looking at how we can reduce that glycemic index so that it's 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 not, you know, you're getting the positive health benefits without the negative. Um, and so, you know, it's it's kind of it's very trendy and hipster and things, but you know, we really need to think about like designer food for our own for our own health. And um, you know, everyone is different. Everyone has different bodies, different needs. You know, in different ages, different sexes, different. Um, 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 you know, all of the genetics and things, but we need, we need to couple much better what we eat with our own, with, with our own health, our own private health. And, and, and food is, that's, that's the force of good potential that we have. Yeah. All of that, uh, research is definitely positive. Uh, and also this engagement with the, with the public and, and try to, to work with the public to understand the different sources of, of, of nutrients. And even just balancing the amounts of uh, protein and carbohydrates and everything, it would help also uh, you to get better habits and, and better life and better health because of the food you eat. And in that sense, I guess the, the, the young generations are a key point that we are really focusing on. And by valuing the, the, the value of your food, then it's a it's a door to understand that if you eat better, then your health in the future will be better, and less uh, investment from the governments on on diseases, on these uh, diseases a long time diabetes and uh, all the coronary diseases that could be also prevented. Um, 
so I think we also are getting ourselves into that uh, area of engaging the public, trying to learn to eat better with better fresh and also um, not so, uh, how do you say, processed foods, right? Right, which is such a key element, I think, particularly in, in this region. Reading the new um, Caparro's book of essays, Ni America, which I really, really recommend. Um, and he talks about this region, Latin America or Ni America, as he calls it. Um, it's got the highest rate of urbanization of any region in the world. So this causes a situation where people, as you say, think their food comes from a shop or a fridge. And maybe it grew there. Who knows? Who cares? Um, and getting people to care is is such a key element of that. Um, but aside from quite traditional areas like, like food education, um, quite aside from the futuristic look of the building, the methods that are being used at Future Seeds facility are, you know, some of them look like something out of a sci-fi movie. For example, there is a, an AI rover known as Don Roberto, as I remember, with a V. Um, so can you explain a bit about the application of artificial intelligence to agriculture, which we so often romanticize or think of as, you know, man, plow, maybe horse, one of those, you know, uh, three-pointed tridents from the American Gothic painting, like that, that's the vision that we have. Um, so how is this high tech intersecting with agriculture at the center? I can, I can, I can talk to that. I mean, I, I can start with just what Don Roberto is doing for us, you know, and and then move on to some of the opportunities that you have with AI and and, and the digital revolution for agriculture. But but one of, one of the things we have we have thirty seven thousand seeds in of, of beans, for example, in the seed bank, and um, it's it's a you know it's basically you know Marcella will, will, Marcella could spend the rest of her life trying to characterize those right and understand every every one of those and it's and it's not just you know how big is the seed or how what color is it it's it's really understanding you know what what when that is planted what characteristics does that plant have is it deep rooting could it be drought tolerant is it high in certain nutrients is it or on the other side does it have toxic toxic contents in it um you know and uh, and so and how quickly does it produce um, all of these things, there are so many elements that basically what you need in a crop, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, these days you, you, you need to create these, you know, these super crops that, the, you know, super plants that, that have all of these things that are resistant to diseases, resistant to climate change. They're productive, they're nutritious, all of these things. And so we have 37,000 beans, all with the potential to, you know, put, you know, with characteristics that could be useful. And it's an absolute nightmare to really figure out um, all of these characteristics in them, right? And so one of the things that's happened is over the last uh, two decades, you've had this revolution on the genetic side of things, so we can sequence them. So we know all of the, you know, the DNA and all of the kind of the genetic information for these, for these seeds, but we still don't know when you plant it out in the field, what does it look like? How does it grow? You know, that, that kind of basic information is super expensive. And so, you know, we... We go back to having, you know, someone basically field workers out there counting leaves, counting flowers, counting pods, measuring things with a ruler, and and it's very expensive and very slow. Um, and so Don Roberto is basically <laughs> say hi to my dogs. Apologies about that. 
Um, and so Don Roberto is doing uh, precisely filling that gap. It's We plant these fields uh, with all of these different varieties, all of these different seeds from across the, the seed bank. And we um, send Don Roberto up and down, taking photos. It's all of these images get taken from different angles of these crops. And then it gets shipped up and analyzed on the cloud with all of this AI. And it counts individual beans. It counts individual leaves it counts the the flowers it tells you basically throughout the cycle everything that's happening it's basically this this incredible kind of window into what that that plant is doing and on individual plants so we can have one hectare and in two two hours don roberto knows everything about every single plant across that uh, across that plot and so that is a revolution for us in terms of the characterization and understanding all of the value that we have in in the seed bank so that's what we've been doing on on campus. Beyond that, there's a digital revolution in agriculture that's fascinating, but that's a, that's a whole other whole other topic. Right, and you guys also have drones um, that are able to scan beyond photo, or that are working on being able to scan into root structures, or maybe scanning for viruses, something like that. I can, and so yeah, we have all sorts. We have drones that are that can do little three D maps of the fields, so we know the the architecture of all of these plants. We have drones that um, that then are also just looking at kind of greenness and being able to monitor kind of change over time. Um, one of the problems we have with Don Roberto, for example, is that um, doesn't like getting his feet wet, and so not so good going through paddy rice. So that's where we resort to drones for some of this stuff. Um, and then um, we also have, I mean, one of the things that, that um, is getting used now, drones, is also for kind of more precision and, and, and more efficient use of, of pesticides and things and herbicides. So from the management side of things on crops, also using, using drones to reduce the amount of inputs of these things that we have to put on the crops and be more precise about where we put it. So only, only on, the cro- on the plants, basically, where we see um, you know, disease or, or, or a pest or a disease of some sort. So there's there's kind of three activities as I as I see it in this way. One of which is to identify the crops which are already in storage, which can help address some of these challenges that we face. Some of which are related to climate change, some not. Um, and then there's traditional breeding, um, where something is needed and we know what qualities are in certain plants, so we can breed them to create a third plant. Uh, also at the centre is gene editing technology. Um, the CRISPR technique, which won the Nobel a, a number of years ago. I'm sure you guys know. I'm afraid I don't. Um, so, so how does the CRISPR technology differ from the traditional breeding and why is it important? Yeah, it um, actually is now GMO. It's just getting to know some of the genes that would activate or deactivate uh, a process. And it's a, a matter of... Uh, actually turning on or off a specific gene that it was identifying a different species. So it, uh, it helps in, cer- in certain uh, purposes, but uh, not on everything. But it's a very revolutionary work because uh, it is actually the same genes of the same species, it's not really introducing something uh, out of the, of the species. And uh, for example, um, it's just responding to diseases or trying to perhaps uh, remove some toxic uh, materials, so cadmium, for example, in cacao, not into the seed, but just leave it in the rest of the plant and just 
get it out of the seed, not include it there. Um, and, and for example, with the specific uh, forages that uh, are not domesticated, it would be so interesting to, to be able to domesticate more rapidly and just uh, prevent these 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 genes or this uh, mechanism that the the fruit as soon as it dries and it's mature just spreads out the seeds and and therefore the the farmer cannot really collect as as the beans that are domesticated so it's those kind of applications that we can like turn on or off like your light uh, also aging and really uh, obtain a specific phenotype on on the plant right and i i've heard from from you guys as well about some of the challenges because these you know the the freezers are are pretty pretty foolproof but the the bonsai yucca plants which is like a it's a tiny little yucca in a test tube that lives in gel effectively um and these need a, a lot more upkeep so when something happens um in a country for example, the national paro or, or the pandemic, how do you guys face that kind of challenge uh, with with keeping these little plants alive? Yeah, like... Uh, has all the horror stories. You're going to bring back all of these these bad memories of the pandemic and the, the paro, the, the protest. Sorry, trigger warning. I was going to say just simply with super stuff, superhumans really committed to, to protect this collection. And yes, the cassava is the, the most fragile and also most expensive collection that we have. It's a clonal collection. It's not that big. It's almost 6,000 different materials. But as Emily, you said, uh, it's just tiny little plants, I would say, it, uh, Barbie-like plants uh, in epindo, in, in uh, not really epindo, but um, uh, test tubes, glass test tubes. And it requires that the person multiplies the same plants to obtain a new clone every one and a half, almost two years. That's that's the minimum uh, rate. So what we're pursuing is really to have a space for cryoconservation. The methods are available specifically for cultivated cassava, at least one room devoted uh, with uh, two cryogenic tanks. And that's, that's the plan to start introducing and creating these uh, base collection of uh, cryoconservated cassava. So that will uh, leave us uh, not suffering because of uh, these uh, things that happen, you know, emergency plans that uh, uh, my staff had to come and leave in campus for one, two weeks or across uh, the the, the, the caña, caña dulce uh, with their bicycles or motorcycles so yeah those were tough times mm. and you said at one point you had trouble explaining to donors why there was only bread on the receipts that you were giving them yeah yeah that, this is one of the stories we had um we had problems with audit because we we had um we had a certain employee that kept coming in with a kind of very badly handwritten receipt of um uh, of of like uh, 60 bread buns um, every day. And we were like, why on earth do we have to pay for 60 bread buns for you to do your job in the seed bank? And uh, and, it, and it turns out that basically it was the, the strategy of that person to get through these pretty, pretty difficult and dangerous roadblocks of protesters during that uh, was, to, was to hand out bread. Um, and so 
they arrive with the with the local delivery of bakery products and then would be allowed through and would then you know spend the day working away on the campus and so everyone had stories and we had a a fascinating lunch where everyone kind of told all of the the ways and the strategies that they used to get through and what it was it was i mean we were just i mean blown away by staff who would risk risk their literally risk their lives to go through these roadblocks to to you know to get onto campus, risk not being able to get back to their families, just to keep all of this stuff going. And and the stories of this is not just here. I mean, it happened during, you mentioned already the Syria, the, the gene bank in Syria, you know, there were there were people there talking to ISIS and they were talking to, um, you know, the, both basically both sides and just saying, look, please don't come in here. Don't send your missiles this way. This is really important. Um, this is the heritage of humanity in this in this building and we need to keep it. And, go- and in governments, I mean, the irony is that the Syria kind of the, the Arab Spring, it's been shown that it was in part thanks to food prices. I mean, a lot of that, that what happened in those years was because we had a food price spike in it and it, um, it created unhappiness in the population. And I think governments across the world have figured out that, that a hungry population is a dangerous population for, for keeping that government in power. And so the, the, that's why there's, there's, you know, the second prices go up, you see a lot of worried politicians. I, I won't get into the poli- politics of Colombia, but I mean, I will say that um, any country with inequity at the levels that many of the countries of Latin America have is going to have problems. You, it, it'll just pull back development, economic development, growth, improvement of conditions. As long as there is inequity, that's that's the disease in a society that 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 will not allow anything else to progress. And so, you know, I think that that's a critical issue in Latin America that, that, that needs addressing. Um, for the future, though, I mean, you know, going back to what's within, within our, our, at least our, our hands, our, within our realm of, of possibilities, you know, I, I, I look at the data. We have enormous challenges in the food system. We have enormous challenges from, uh, you know, from, environmental challenges um we have enormous challenges of kind of of, on the health side of humans and so on but we also are at a moment of incredible technical and technological innovation and the things that are happening now are mind-blowing in terms of what we can do and so you know i'm a i'm a firm believer in innovation being you know the the mother the kind of necessity being the mother of innovation and right now we have that necessity very much very much uh, in place, um, and I think um, you know we do have those tools. I think we've it's it's a question of getting. I'm a I'm a globalist, you know, kind of my my slant on things. You know, I mean, everything these days in 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 the world, you know, is is defined by we're in a globalized society, and I think we need to solve many of these problems through global processes as well. Um, and I think we've just got to get the you know that the global support to pay more attention to food, pay more attention to the need for this innovation. Um, and, and and the solutions are there if, if it just gets the right attention. Yeah, and just to, to add a brief comment, I think uh, this technological innovation in agriculture would also help to reinforce or, or regrow uh, the interest of of humanity into the into agriculture, into the into the fields into the farmers. Uh, we have not valued our farmers as as well as we should, but uh, 
with innovation, I think the new generations will also be uh, kind of attracted to the to the agriculture, and that's what we need, and not uh, what we've seen so far: a lot of migration from the from the countryside to the to the cities. Uh, I think this new innovation will also attract uh, new generations to go back into the into the field side. Right. I think you've both touched on something really interesting about globalization. And we, you know, we live very mired in a very powerful media narrative of fragmentation and conflict. And certainly the pandemic, I think, difficult to argue otherwise, caused countries to turn inwards back onto themselves. Um, but this center and this project has something truly global about it. You know, it really is a network of centers that are working with one another across the entire world. And, and I know you guys have sent seeds to the UK, to how many countries? Upwards of 40? More than 140. More than 140. Wow, missed, missed a couple there with my estimate. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so is this is this the future of food? Is this, is this globalization, this networking, this togetherness, where it's headed? I think it's... Yes, globalization altogether, but also with our uh, tiny differences that uh, I think we've missed. Uh, but uh, as we talked, uh, maybe uh, the consumption culture or, or habits might also change. And uh, this is part of the teaching uh, how, to, how to eat better, uh, better food, and also food that is uh, specific for different cultures. Because... Food is also very related to how who we are, and and therefore it's working together, but with our differences in in the different countries. In one of my favorite other favorite countries after Colombia is Vietnam, and there you get um, you get um, the the Hanoi beer is fantastic, and and they have the best slogan I've ever ever seen on any product, and it's think global, act local, uh, and. Uh, and that's exactly what's needed. I think you know we we the world is the world is interconnected in incredible ways, um, but it's also incredibly diverse. And that diversity is 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 its beauty, and we need to protect that. But we need to work collectively around these problems. Think global, act local. I think that's a fantastic place to end on. Thank you so much, Andy and Marcela. This has been super super fascinating um thanks for joining us <laughs>